It really is my privilege to be able to speak this morning as we are, uh, in a sense, waiting for our pastor as he uh, returns from his time away and um, refreshment that he's getting from that. And so I have been in this series of Romans 8 for going on years now. Whenever I have opportunity to uh, speak, this is where I go, and it's, uh, it has been, as I've mentioned before, just a, uh, a thrill to give so much time and thought into this chapter. And I trust even as we look at these verses, understand a little bit more of what Paul is saying in this chapter, that we would come away encouraged uh, in him. So our text this morning is going to be Romans 8, 18 through 25. And appreciate Nick reading through that this morning, and we're going to get there. But what I'd like to do is go to uh, verse 1 and look there first. In chapter, or in chapter 8, in verse 1, you've got the setting up of the chapter as a whole. What Paul is going to give to us in this chapter. And he states there in verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What I thought I would do is give a good, or this would be a good opportunity to review a little bit to understand uh, more clearly what's going on then later on in this chapter. And the most important concept to understand here is that there are some people who are not condemned. And if you see there in the verse, they are those, those people are those who are in Christ Jesus. Earlier in Romans, Paul had been going through and talking about what it is to be lost. Uh, right away, he talks about those where the, the wrath of God is upon those who do not know God, and he goes through and very uh, thoroughly condemns all mankind in sin. And in that, he then goes and reveals the fact that, that Christ came and was the propitiation for our sin. And those who believe in him, who have heard and received and believed the message of the gospel— those who have believed are justified by faith in Christ alone. And Paul then goes on to explain that those who are justified are also united with Christ in baptism by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And when a person is united to Christ, there are spiritual realities that are working in those people. And when a person uh, sees the reality, believes in Christ, they are saved, then Paul in this chapter, in chapter 8, is going over several of those spiritual realities so that we might be strengthened and encouraged in Christ. And so he begins that way where he says, therefore, there is uh, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And being in Christ <clears throat> is the greatest good that anyone could ever have. And Paul, as, as he's going through and talking about these things, I think we can uh, in various ways see that work uh, that he is doing or that he is explaining to us. So what if you are sitting out there listening to me and you do not know what it means to be in Christ? Or as you're sitting there, you're, you're even drawn to this aspect of receiving this gift of forgiveness. And there is this question mark in your heart, in your soul, then I would say this to you, do not rest until you have come and settled that by seeking the knowledge of salvation and believing in the gospel. And if uh, there is that question or desire, of course, myself, there's others here that would love to sit down and talk with you about that, that you might know what it is to have salvation and to be in Christ. But Paul here, he is writing this chapter to people who have been justified by faith and are in Christ. And he opens up the realities of what that means to be in Christ. And again, as you read these verses, you will see the Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again in relationship to us. The Holy Spirit has a major part in our relationship with Christ and our union in him. And so... This morning, let's begin in verse 14. Our text is going to be 18 through 25. But in 14, sets us up a little bit better for us to understand as he gets into the verses that that are mentioned there in verse 18, the concepts there in verse 18. So in verse 14, he says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You know that you are a Christian when the Holy Spirit of God is leading you. Now to understand all that it implies and all that it means when I say that the Holy Spirit is is leading you, you'd have to listen to the messages that were in association with that verse uh, that we had earlier. Myself, pastor has uh, those on the web as well. But we're going to quickly move on from that to this reality in verses 15 and 16, where he says, you've got these people that are being led by the Spirit of God, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So the spirit that we have within us cries out, Abba, Father. And that cry is a demonstration or the working out of that relationship that we have with God. We have this relationship with God. Now we are that we are in Christ. And it's this. It's one of sonship. We are children of God. And Paul is explaining the essence of being a child of God. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are as children. So, if we are children of God, what does that mean? And Paul then goes on to explain in verse 17 
what he is talking about. So let's read verse 17 here. He says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also be glorified with him. So here's this reality. Being a child of God has privilege to it. Amazing privilege. We are heirs of God. In fact, we have an inheritance that is coming. And so, if that is so, then being heirs of God means that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And whatever Christ is going to inherit, we have a part in that inheritance. And so, this is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. And that inheritance, as it's mentioned here, has to do with his glory. If we are heirs, that also means that however Christ receives his inheritance, we too will follow in the same way in order to receive our inheritance. So what is it or what way does Christ receive his inheritance? Well, there is something that comes first. We have that inheritance. We have the, the promise here that we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, What comes before that? Well, that what comes before is in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And really, here's the truth I'm trying to get to at this point. The children of God, we, the children of God, suffer with Christ in this life. And then we will someday be glorified with him. We are heirs of Christ. That means that we will be glorified with him. But in order to be glorified him, we will also suffer with him. And since we are heirs with Christ, we will share in his glory. And since we share in his future glory, we will also share in his present suffering. Christ followed this order. Well, like this, he suffered first and then was glorified. So the glory that is to be ours is in direct association with the sufferings that we are currently experiencing. Suffering is first and then glory is later. And you see this in uh, passages throughout the New Testament. In fact, let's go to one of them, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, a very well-known passage here that lays this out about Christ. Here Paul is encouraging the Philippians to put forth Christ as the example and encouraging, exhorting us to follow in his way. If you look here in verse 5, he says, we're going to jump in. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And keep in mind what we just looked at here, that there's suffering first and then glory to follow. And he says it this way, verse 6, Who, that is Christ, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You can hear there in that description of what Christ did in his life, really in a summary right there, of what happened to him as he walked through this life. And it, it was, you know, we were start up in the heavens where he's sitting at the right hand of God. He doesn't regard that as something to fully be grasped or clutched to. He's willing to set that aside for a time, be born into this sinful world, the sinful creation with sinful people. And in that uh, situation, as he is living among us, among our sin, he is suffering. He's humbling himself. And he is experiencing those things that bring about that suffering. Suffering to the point of what? Even to the point of death. And that was, for him, the death on a cross. Lowest point you can get to. And the passage goes on. He says there in verse 9, For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can see there that reality that as Christ suffered and gave himself, God the Father took him, exalted him, and someday will exalt him even further. To the fact, to the point that every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's the, the rich thing that Paul is mentioning in Romans 8. We will have a part in that glory. Now, we're not Christ. We're not glorified as if we are Christ. But we have a part of the glory that Christ will receive. And that is part of our inheritance. But just as Paul, or just as Christ suffered while he was here, so we too suffer first, and then glory to come. Part of that suffering as you saw in Philippians chapter 2, part of the nature of that suffering is humility. There's other aspects of that suffering, but one of the major ones is humility as Christ was humbled. And there's another passage that clearly spells this out. This is in 1 Peter. I'll just read it to you. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, do you hear that? Keep on rejoicing, so that you also, at the revelation of his glory, may rejoice with exaltation. Suffering first, glory to follow. And that is what we have as privileged believers in Christ. That is what Paul is talking about here. Now, in verses 18 through 25, Paul is going to talk about these sufferings that he has just mentioned. 
after a person becomes a Christian, many times there is this burst of growth in the Christian life. Perhaps you can remember this in your Christian life or have seen it in others, clearly, where the person wakes up to spiritual realities and it just seems like there are amazing truths around every corner and everyone needs to realize these things. There's this zeal to tell everyone. Everyone, um, everyone needs to experience the joy and salvation in the Lord. But that same person will come to realize in a short while that becoming a Christian does not mean that all of your problems will go away. In fact, a person faces more problems and more suffering once they become a Christian. So what do you need? Paul has just said, you will suffer. You need reasons to be encouraged while you suffer. And in order to be strengthened and encouraged, Paul is going to set forth and explain truths that are going to help us when we are walking through that suffering. And that is going to be in these verses, verses 18 through 25. Let's, um, <clears throat> let's read them here now. And it's, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's almost like, let me pause here and say, what, Paul? They're not even compared? Yes. Here are reasons. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory and children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Second reason, verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what? For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So here's this encouraging truth. Here's the uh, encouraging truth for suffering believers. We're going to look at one this morning, and this evening we're going to look at the next one, which is actually in verses 26 and 27. But the one here in verses 18 through 25, I'd like to summarize it like this. <clears throat> Believers who are in Christ hope for great glory to come after our suffering. Believers who are in Christ hope for great glory to come after our suffering. So when Paul thinks about suffering, when he considers the suffering that he is experiencing in this life, or did experience from our perspective, what does he consider? Well, he considers the glory that is to come instead of the present suffering. 
There's an illustration, I think, of this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's go to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And see there, really in a, an example <clears throat> of what was going on, or an illustration of this. And it's when he is stoned. Remember that instance? He's stoned. And starting in verse 19, um, they are in Lystra. Uh, this verse doesn't mention that, but before it says they were in Lystra. And some of the Jews, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. They came to Lystra and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now that's pretty severe trusting, uh, suffering where you are preaching, as the Apostle Paul was, and they this crowd gets riled up, they take him out, and they literally put him you know, out in front of them, they stand back, they grab stones, and just start throwing those stones at him. And they're doing this and hitting him until he is on the ground, and they look at him, and the crowd says, oh, he must be dead. Let's leave him there and go. And so... Verse 20 says, but while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he didn't run away. He entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so as Paul is saying that, now the scripture doesn't say this, but if he's just been stoned, I'm, he probably still has the markings of that stoning on him and the suffering that he endured as he did that. And he was able to stand up go back into the city, go roundabout, and then come back to Lystra and say, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And that we would say, how did you do that, Paul? How is it that you're able to get up, walk back into the city after suffering like that? And it's this, he does not Think about the suffering. When he considers the suffering, he considers the glory that is to come instead. He is content to suffer because he knows the glory that is to come. And it's there's also another illustration as I was thinking about this. <clears throat> there were those in Romania who in the 1940s and 50s were persecuted. They were imprisoning pastors and teachers of the word of God. And as they would do that, these preachers who were in prison, the prison guards would come in and say, you cannot preach even to other prisoners that were there. You can't preach. And they would preach anyways. And they would preach and they go out and get beaten. And they would come back in. And there are stories of preachers that were in the middle of preaching and they would kind of get back in. They are, they've just been beaten for doing that very thing, they kind of stand up and say, okay, now where was I? And they continue to preach. There is something there that you've got to see beyond the suffering in order to continue on in that way. So let's look at verse 18. 
Verse 18 says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul talks about suffering and glory. And just like he mentioned in verse 17, here he is making comparison. But the, uh, he put the present sufferings on one side of the scale and put the future glory on the other side of the scale. Now, we've talked about that glory and what it's like. But he's saying here the comparison, there is no comparison. The glory far outweighs the suffering. And so just to kind of illustrate this a little bit, let's say we go out here in the field and we've got a big scale. It's got this really big scale out there. And we decide we're going to weigh sufferings versus glory. And so on one side, you've got a pile of bricks. And each brick, let's say each brick is part of the suffering of this life. And we start loading the bricks on that scale. And we load the bricks and just start loading them there. Brick after brick, sufferings that we experience in this life. You get up to 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 100. And you get up to like, you know, 235 bricks on that scale. That's like, that's like a lot of weight on that scale. And the other side is the glory. So you look and see, uh, you know, what are, what are we going to put on that other side? And as you're looking at that scale and considering all the bricks that are on the inside, suddenly you hear beeping in the background. Like something's beeping, you look around, and sure enough, here comes this dump truck full of bricks. And that dump truck comes up and just unloads all those bricks and just covers the scale. And then we realize, oh, wait, you look down the road, and there is just a whole line of dump trucks down the road waiting their turn to come and dump their bricks on that side of the scale. There is no comparison to the the sufferings that we're experiencing now, to the glory that is to come in Christ Jesus. Paul considers the sufferings of this life are nothing in comparison to the glory that is to follow. Well, how was it he's able to consider these things in that way? How is it that he can do that? Well, you've got in verses 18 through 25, what it is that he says he teaches the need to know in order for us to be strengthened, to consider the glory that is to come. When we come to understand what Paul taught and embrace it, we will also be able to do what Paul did. He considers the sufferings to be nothing in comparison to the glory that is to come. So what is it? The first one is in verses 19 through 22. If we have this knowledge and this perspective, it's going to give us that strength to consider our groanings or our sufferings to be nothing in comparison to the glory. And that is this. Creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's what basically he is saying here. You see that, verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We're going to pause right there and talk about that. 
What was it that in the beginning that happened to creation? Well, you have to go back to Genesis, right? Think back to that time. Sin enters the world. But before sin enters the world, what was creation experiencing? It was, it was experiencing the, the wonder of God's glory in a place that was just paradise all the time. And everything in that creation functioned together in such a way that it was, it was perfect, functioning together, and everything gave glory and praise to God in unhindered way. And creation, now we weren't there, but creation knew it and was experiencing it. If you can give creation that personality or that sense of kind of like being a person, it experienced it. And there creation was experiencing all this glory. But what happened? Something bad really happened because that's not happening right now. Well, we know, of course, sin. Adam sins. Creation then goes into futility. The strength and energy of creation then, it's like it is working, but it just keeps dying. It just keeps dying. And it's like, as uh, one commentary read, it's like you have uh, the seasons every year displaying this kind of thing, where in the spring you've got the, the growth and the flowers and the beauty of it. And in summer, you've got the, gr- the further growing and maturing, but then it just gets cold and the leaves fall off. And what happens is things look dead. And then it like creation again tries to display this and again and over and over again we've got i think and and even in the seasons this display of creation and the futility that's there and we we know that futility and we will uh get to that more later on but here paul says that there is something in creation though that is going on that you really don't see this until you know it. And it's this. Creation is hoping. It's hoping for something. You see that in verse 20, it says, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, this death and dying that it's always experiencing, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is in slavery to this corruption. I mean, it's like you've got even these things like hurricanes and uh, the violence of tornadoes and other things like that that are going on. And it's in slavery to that corruption, but it's waiting for the glory of God to be manifested in those who are in Christ. When the reality of those people, Christ in you, when that is then revealed, it's like all of creation is going to be redeemed. It's going to be in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
And verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans. And there's that word. It's like you, you can hear it when you look around and you see that, that constant dying around and the futility of it. It's groaning and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And that is going on. Creation is constantly experiencing this weight of the slavery of corruption. And it's waiting for something. It just is waiting. And that idea of waiting is it's like on, it's just craning its sight, looking forward to that point, And therefore, there's hope. Hope in that future time. And so <clears throat> we've got creation. Secondly, we have us. And that's where Paul gets into in verses 23. He says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, just like creation, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is not hope for what hope, uh, what, for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. We are waiting. We were not at the creation of the world, but we have had something happen to us similar to creation in that creation knew what it was in the time when there was no sin. Now, we still are sinful in this present life, but we have within us something that is glorious, and it's, we just have the sense that there is, it's, there is this glory or this rightness, and it's not right right now. And we are... Waiting, we have tasted of the Spirit of God in us. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. That taste is amazing. It's glorious. And we know, down in our souls, we know that glory is coming. We don't know the extent of it, but we have tasted it and know that something great is coming in the end. And Paul here just fills it out. He says, you're going to be fully redeemed. Your adoption is going to be fully manifested. Our inheritance is going to be made complete, and we can't wait for it. It's coming, and we're looking for it. We groan in the sufferings of this life. Creation groans, being burdened with the sin of mankind. We, who know the glory of the Spirit, groan in the midst of sinfulness, this expected anticipation and assurance that we will be glorified is hope. But right now, right now, we are experiencing the sufferings that threaten to discourage and derail the soul. Sufferings can do that and damage our spiritual lives. And there are many different sufferings that we go through. We are, Paul is not minimizing the sufferings 
that we have. There are, there are all sorts of sufferings. <clears throat> There's general suffering because of the fall of Adam. Everyone suffers these. And so you think of whatever your circumstances are right now, the whole creation from Antarctica to the North Pole, from North America to South America, Africa, Europe, Asia, Australia, every tiny island in between, the whole creation groans and suffers. And since we are part of the creation, we suffer. We suffer with every war, disease, cancer, violence, earthquakes, hurricanes, drought, kidnappings, tortures. No one can escape this. And even as we've seen recently, not even the Queen of England, and that is death. What do we do in any of these situations? We suffer. That's one kind of suffering. But there's also a second kind of suffering unique to believers, and is that believers suffer because we are not part of this world. Jesus said we would experience suffering because we follow him. A lot of times that is what we see in the Apostle Paul throughout. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. John or uh, uh, Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15 said this, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And and Jesus' point there is that as he suffered, so we too will suffer as children of God. We are experiencing the difficulties and persecutions of this life. This world does not function on the basis of holiness. Our world functions on the basis of sin. So we, who are living with the first fruits of the Spirit, we are motivated and purposefully living to please God. But we, and we want things a certain way. We want things to be in holiness. We want things to be in righteousness, in goodness. We want Jesus to rule everything. And we love to do that, but the world is completely against holiness and Jesus and persecutes those who try to live this way. And that's where our groaning comes in. We groan in the midst of all these things. And we're groaning and we're waiting, just like creation is waiting, we're waiting for the glory that is to come. So we we are hoping, and what all this produces in us is this reality. We are hoping, for in hope we have been saved. Hope, as it's mentioned here, is not like we normally, typically mention hope, right? We might say something like, you know, if you have a favorite sports team, like the Packers, right? I hope the Packers win the Super Bowl or something like that. Well, that's like a that's like a wishful thinking kind of, you know, you hope, you know, there's that, that kind of hope, 
The scripture is not saying, uses hope in that same way. Hope is different. There is a confidence in some reality now that will be future. There's a truth now that we hold to that will come to fruition in the future. That's hope. And the expectation is not a like, oh, it's, it's possible, but it may not happen. No, no, no. This is like it is assured for us. Faith is assured of those things right now. Hope is assured of those things that are going to come in the future. And when we go through these sufferings now, what it produces in us is an assurance, a hope that is going to happen. Something good and great is going to happen. And Paul says that is glory. The working of God in us and the redemption, full redemption, and a greater reunion with Christ. We have that hope. And this is how Paul is able to be able to say that the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. So this would, this would bring us all the way back to here. So what are you going through right now? What sufferings are you experiencing right now in your life? And they can run the gamut. They can run everything from what, you know, creation, the groaning of creation, and we're part of that creation, and we're groaning because of everything that's falling apart around us. It's part of the aspect of like Christ as he was persecuted because of who he was. And we are believers and we're in Christ and you go out there and you tell people that and there is this suffering, there is the humiliation and the the rejection and even to the point, many places in the world where there's that physical beatings against God's people. Those, all of these things are the sufferings of this life. And Paul is saying here that we have hope in something that is to come. So when you are going through those sufferings, what do you do? Consider them like Paul considers them. Set your mind on what is to come, the glory that is to come for God's people that are in Christ. That's where we set our minds. We get our minds off of the sufferings, off of what we see around us, off of all this deadness and decay, and set them on Christ and what he is. He is our example for sure. He is the one that was set before us, and we follow in his steps. And we, even like Paul did, we consider those things in that same fashion. So whatever it is that you are facing this morning, we have this hope that is in Christ, and we trust in him. And I trust even as you uh, would consider these, these things, that that would be part of it. And <clears throat> that, that encouragement that we have in Christ, that believers in Christ, we hope for a great glory to come after our suffering, that is in these verses. Tonight, we're going to be looking at 
the second part or another encouragement that's found in verses 26 and 27. There is yet still more to come in our encouragement in Christ as we are uh, understanding more and more of those great truths that Paul is giving us here in Romans chapter 8. And that is what makes this chapter such a beautiful chapter to us and encouraging to us. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, thank you for your work in us. Lord, we thank you for the hope that is set before us that Paul so clearly gives us here in this chapter that we might endure these things and consider them nothing in comparison to the glory that is promised to us. I pray, Father, that we would keep our eyes on that promise and the glory that is to come. Work in us and help us, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to close, let's turn to number 5.